when it comes to things like prayer and uh, reading the Bible, they're, they're obviously encouraged a lot in the Bible. When you read, we're, we're admonished frequently, frequently concerning prayer. And we're admonished frequently concerning God's Word. And I want, I want you to think about something because they, they are things that require discipline. They are not strictly carnal acts you know, to read the Bible or, or to pray. They are things that are directed and led by God. Yet they do require a certain amount of discipline in ourselves to do them. I've heard it said by uh, Christians and preachers in the past that, that prayer is like breathing for a Christian. And I actually don't agree with that because I don't have to think about breathing. I just do. It just comes automatically to me. May I say to you that what comes automatically to me is not prayer and reading the Bible or anything that requires discipline. What comes automatically to me is from one moment to the next, what feels right to me, that's what I want to do. And that's true for you as well. That's true for humans. We all have like these, this, this, this yearning in our flesh to do this or to do that or to do nothing, right? Um, sometimes we just want to relax and kick back and, and really just kind of engage in nothing, right? Um, the reason that prayer and the, the study of God's Word is so strongly encouraged, along with many other things, and admonished among believers in the Bible is because we need that encouragement to press on. The reason we're told to stand fast is because there can be, inclined, there can be an inclination to move. The reason we're told to not be anxious for anything is because we're inclined to worry. The reason that we're told to pray with thanksgiving and to let our requests be made known to God is we're inclined to go to men and complain. The reason that we're told to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit is because we're not necessarily always inclined to pray, and when we do pray, we're not always necessarily inclined to pray the way that God wants us to, right? Uh, the reason that we're told, uh, Paul told Timothy, was to, to, to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, uh, eventually arrives at rightly dividing the word of truth. The reason Paul tells Timothy to do that is this is very easy for someone in Timothy's position, as well as any other Christian, to just kind of put that off and, and, be, and be careless about it in favor of other things that he may do with his life. I find it very encouraging, and that's why I'm saying this. I don't know if everyone else will find this encouraging, because maybe you're different than me, and I don't know. I sort of feel like we're all kind of a little the same on this, at least. I find it encouraging to know that the Bible was not, these letters in the Bible were not written to Christians and people in churches that just everything about the Christian life just came easily and automatically to them. Even the Philippian church, 
whose letter we're reading now. These things that we read, they don't come easily and automatically to people. There are times in your life, you know this, certainly you know this. There are times in your life when, and maybe long seasons in your life, where reading and studying the Word or, 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 or being faithful and diligent in prayer requires an extraordinary amount of effort in your part, on your part, right? And you have to fight through things. See, I'm less, I'm less inclined to say that prayer is like breathing to a person uh, who's a Christian than I, I, I'm, more, I'm much more inclined to say that uh, prayer is something that you need to seek through hardship and difficulty to do even when you don't feel like it. I don't know anything, I don't know any verse. Some of you know the Bible as well as I do, so feel free to shout it out if I'm wrong, all right? But I don't, I'm not aware of any passage or any verse or any nuance in Scripture that describes the Christian life and all of the attributes of it as easy. Are you? Sometimes people will say, well, God is sovereign. And that means that since God is sovereign, God will just... And we're coming to the passage in Philippians that says that God works in you to will and to do for His pleasure. And we'll have a really good message about that next week. But but the fact that God is sovereign means He has power over everything. But it doesn't mean that it eradicates from us the responsibility to say yes to the things that he commands and to actually do them by putting forth effort. Is not the Christian walk analogized in Scripture by a road that is narrow and difficult, the road that leads to life? That has very much to do with the gospel itself, but I think it has something to do with the Christian walk. Because once we believe the gospel, we're not immediately snatched out of this life and taken to be with God. We have the issue of the life that we live. So I find it encouraging to know that when I battle and struggle to find it in me to get to prayer, to get to reading the word, it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because it is not of this world to do that. And so I'm not less than every other Christian. I am one of every other Christian. That doesn't absolve me from my responsibility, but what it does do is it shows me that just as God doesn't give up on any Christian, God doesn't give up on me. I find that encouraging. I find it very encouraging to know that when I struggle and labor and pray, listen, the Bible describes it. It says that when we pray, there are times we can't even find the words and the Spirit makes intercession for us with with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
There are times where I can't even find anything to say before God because of the, the burden and, and the groanings, that the, the internal groanings in my heart. God can hear and interpret and understand those things. He doesn't give up on me or toss that aside. Now, I have some responsibility. I need to keep my mind clear and pure. I have to be careful about what I look at. I have to be careful about what I listen to. I have to be careful about what I read. I have to be careful about any internal stimulus. Because I want to keep myself free and focused, like the good soldier does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I need to keep myself free so that I'm pursuing holiness in the fear of God the way that he wishes for me to. So that I'm not quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit when I'm commanded to pray in the Holy Spirit. If you find it difficult to pray, if you find it difficult to read God's Word, that's not necessarily because there's something wrong with you. But I want to exhort you and encourage you to pray and to study God's word even when you don't feel like it. Because that is where the comfort is found. You understand? The very thing you're struggling to do is the thing that will alleviate the struggle. Does that make sense? Go to the Lord. Listen, if you have to crawl and claw and scrape and drag yourself before him, do it. Do it. He hears even when we can't find the words to say. He hears the groanings of our hearts. Pursue him. Pursue him. That has nothing to do with my sermon today. So that means I have to shorten the rest of the sermon because I've got to get to that last hymn, you know. That's my commitment. I think I've done it every week. I, I, think maybe one, I think the week we had the Lord's Supper, I didn't. So I didn't do it every week. But since I made that commitment, we've, every, every time we've gotten to the last hymn and still got out on time, right? Someone say praise the Lord. That's, pro, that's progress, right? Okay, now turn to Philippians chapter 2. It hasn't taken me thir- the last word, I'll say, about my little pre-sermon sermon. Well, actually, I did one of those while I was making the announcements, too. So, so, so that, was, that was pre-sermon sermon number two. But um, I, it hasn't taken me 30 years to learn, but it has taken me almost that long to accept, which is something different, that following Christ... Walking as a Christian, it's hard. And that's why the exhortations and the admonishments of the Bible are so precious. They're not written to people who find it easy. Notice that? They're written to people who find it hard. Because people who find it easy don't need any admonishment. 
right? Accept that and then just go for it anyway. When you don't feel like, see, here's what, here's what we do. I said I was always going to say that. Maybe this, maybe, maybe this will help someone. Maybe this is you. We feel like when it's time to spend time in prayer and we don't feel like praying, you know what we often do? We don't pray because we think that somehow God can't possibly hear that. And God, God has no interest in someone praying to him who's not just on fire and raging and like, and like everything in their life is just right. They've committed no sin in ever, like in the last time since they prayed. They didn't have one bad thought, utter one bad word, nothing. Everything about them is right. And so that's the person that God will listen to. And I'm not that. So God doesn't want to hear me. That's what we'll do. Will think, I, how can I possibly read the Bible when I got all this other stuff on my mind? And oh, listen, brothers and sisters, your pastor has been there, you know, like trying to read the Bible when I got all this other stuff on my head and, and reading a paragraph and then saying to myself, I just read that paragraph and I didn't notice one thing that it said and I go back and I read it again. Anyone else ever been there? I mean, I'm, I'm there sometimes, you know. You know what you've got to do? You've got to plow through it. God is able. God is able to strengthen and help you through that. The Bible is written to people who struggle like that. Not written to people who've got it all figured out and don't need any guidance. It's guidance for the Christian. It's not guidance for the Christian that doesn't need guidance. It's guidance for the Christian that needs guidance. That's me. Sign me up. Okay? Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. We want to be a body of people, a body of people that nothing gets in our way when it comes to seeking God. Nothing gets in our way when it comes to seeking God. Well, I just had a bad thought five minutes ago. There's no way I'm going to pray. Nonsense. You need to pray. You especially need to. Believe his promises, faithful and just to forgive and cleanse when you confess. Believe his promises, that his, that his grace is sufficient for you. I asked the Lord three times to take this away, and every time the answer came back, my grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient. Believe it. Believe it. Believe it. I don't care how you feel. Believe it. Well, I do care how you feel, but you know what I mean. It, it's, it's, it's not the determining factor. Feelings are not the determining factor of anything before God. Go. Sometimes maybe those feelings are rough because God wants you to struggle. You read about, you read about Jacob when he prayed all night and it was like, it was like wrestling with God. In a wrestling match with God. That didn't feel good. And he got up the next morning and he couldn't walk. I don't know if I'm just saying all this to get it out for like my own benefit or I'm hoping this benefits like somebody, all of you are. Okay, all right, on to the sermon. Philippians chapter 2. I, I, guess, I guess what it is is I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say to you that I struggle. And, 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 and maybe, 
Maybe that's like part of the call. Peter said, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So I'm not supposed to be like separated off among. You know what I mean? And so maybe, maybe if, maybe, maybe somehow talking about how like I struggle like in a personal relationship with God will somehow help somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, and praise God for that. Don't, don't credit me for anything. Praise, praise the Lord for that, right? Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I pray you'd help me and you'd help all of us to be humble before you and to seek you with the whole heart, to seek you even more strongly when we don't feel like it. There are all kinds of things, discouragements, worldliness, the lore of this world. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to press in. Your word says that the veil was torn in two. Your word says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in time of need. Help us, Lord, to boldly come in. Come in, come in, come in. Before you, often. I pray that I and my brothers and sisters, by your, only by your grace, that's all we've got is the promise of your grace, that by your grace we might find the encouragement that is needed in you, even amidst many diverse hardships and trials. May we find the encouragement that we need in you, not just for the sake of how we feel, but for the sake of being fruitful in your kingdom and fulfilling the tasks that you have set before us, Lord God, especially to preach the gospel to the lost and to make disciples of all the nations. Lord, now we come to the scripture for today, which I guess is somewhat connected, but really separate from what I'm talking about. And I pray, Lord God, that we would see the great example of humility that our Lord Jesus was and let that same mind be in us. Help us, Lord, to learn and to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in Philippians chapter 2, and to just a quick review of last week, very fast, last week we talked about the spirit that should be at the heart of the ministry of every church. And we saw that the Apostle Paul, who was writing from prison, said, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and mercy, if there's any of that good blessing that comes from knowing the Lord, which there certainly is, he says, fulfill my joy. And then there were those three things we talked about. We talked about the like-mindedness, which had to, had to do with like being of the same mind, anchored on the truth of the gospel. It talked about having the same love, and we talked about the power of that uh, love among Christians that de- is derived from the love of Christ. And then we talked about uh, that being in one accord that is uh, in that kind of agreement about our mission and purpose as a church. And that's like the spirit that's at the heart of every church. The believers are of one mind, the believers are of one love, and the believers are of one mission or purpose. Right? Then we get to the point where 
the passage concluded last week um, after examining those three things at length. In verse 3, he said that uh, we should let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But on the other hand, what? That lowliness of mind we defined as what? Anyone remember? It's the H word. Humility, humble, right? That has to be with humble. That whole idea of esteeming others better than ourselves. It speaks of very practically looking at, thinking about esteem. It means to consider, to value, to others better than ourselves. If everyone esteems others better than themselves, then everyone gets esteemed, right? And esteem is a very important thing because esteem can be equated with encouragement. Not, it speaks not of self-esteem. It, 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 it speaks of self-abasement and others' esteem. You esteem others, which will encourage your own soul because you will be one with Christ who himself esteemed others better than themselves. And you will receive the esteem and encouragement that comes from others who are also being obedient to the same command. And in that way, every Christian is loved, every Christian is encouraged, and every Christian is built up. But it starts with that attitude of humility. Verse 4, he said, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So there was a there was a humility at the core of a humility at the foundation of what? An esteeming of others and a caring for others. Uh, you might say that the esteeming of others is that which is the internal aspect of it, and then the caring for other people's needs is sort of the outworking or external or, or practical expression of it. But whether it's, whether it's like kind of an internal esteem, a love, a preferring of others to the self, or uh, an outworking of it in practical deeds, loving and, and helping one another, at the core of it is what? Humility. Humility. And that's about as far as we got with it last week. And now we come to verse 5, right? And verse 5 lays out for us the fact that this concept of humility being at the core of where we are in our hearts and what we do in our deeds was exemplified best by our Lord and Savior Himself. Jesus is presented to us in these words. And what it becomes, if you just read the passage by itself, it becomes a great description of the gospel, right? Like you could share these words even maybe with someone who doesn't know the Lord and explain them, and it could be a good launching off point for sharing the gospel with someone. I like to read and listen to Pastor MacArthur, you know that. And uh, I believe just this, this past Christmas time, when he preached his Christmas message, he based it on this, this passage of Scripture because it so describes what happened at the Incarnation. It describes what happened at the Incarnation so well that Jesus, who is God, humbled himself and, and became a man, right? And all that's very good. But I would say to you, where this passage of Scripture is most powerful, as with any other passage of Scripture, is within the context of the entire letter. Paul doesn't write what he writes here for the purpose of explaining the incarnation, though it certainly does and, and can be used for that and should be. Um, Paul doesn't write this here to explain the gospel to unbelievers. 
The book of Philippians is written to believers. And Paul writes, the book, Paul writes this passage we're about to read so that you and I can have a practical example for how we ought to live. Christ in his humility is an example for how I ought to be in my heart and how I ought to act in my life. So put forth here is a picture of the humility of Christ with a series of details. Christ was so humble that this and this and this and this and this. And then it's capped off. The capstone on this passage, this paragraph, is to show that the conclusion of it is because Christ humbled himself, God took that somewhere. And that's also something, again, it's written for us, for our example. Humility is not something that is called for strictly for its own sake, though it is a beautiful thing by itself. But the humility of Christ here led to a future, as it was for him at the time, exaltation. And the same is true with us. The the active humility of us in our lives is preparing us and leading us for the future glorification that God has for us. You understand that? We humble ourselves now, and we will always be humble before God. I don't mean that there will ever be a time when we're not going to be humble. But we humble ourselves in this life now because we know that our glorification is not in this life now. Our glorification comes just as Christ first humbled himself by coming to earth and then was glorified when he rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. And now what does he have? Now he has a name that's higher than every other and uh, every knee bow will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, right? Verse 5, let me read this. Let this mind, the mind that is described in verses 3 and 4 that we just went over, the mind of humility, the mind of esteeming others, the lowliness of mind, let this mind be in you. If it stopped there, that would be enough. But it doesn't. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Whoa. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a... I mean, if it stopped there, that would be enough. But it doesn't. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. If it stopped there, that would certainly be enough. But it says, even the death of the cross. Therefore, therefore, God also has highly exalted him. So powerful. So powerful when you read these things in their paragraphs and in their context. The word therefore hooks the exaltation of Christ by God his Father to the humility of Christ in becoming a man. 
He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In case you don't understand what he means. Of those in heaven, of those on the earth, look at this, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue, every tongue that's attached to every one of those knees, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It started with God the Son humbling himself and becoming a man and ends with every tongue. Listen. Think of the most impertinent impertinent and virulent mockery of Jesus you've ever heard in your life. Every tongue that has brought that forth will one day, with full understanding and acceptance, confess Jesus is Lord. It started with Christ humbling himself. It didn't start with Christ coming and just throwing power all over the place and and just 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 beating everything into beating everything into the shape that he wants it to be and he didn't wasn't born in the manger and then by the time he was 5 years old he was already king and enacting great reforms and 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 getting all of the sin out of the land and getting everyone chained getting everyone in line no he humbled himself and became of no reputation and died shamefully But where it goes is every tongue. How many tongues has God made? Some of the, that's the correct answer. Everyone. Very good. (laughs) See, in my mind, I ask how many tongues has God made? I'm thinking of a number. But you answered it correctly. Everyone. Very good. Very good. That's great. Wisdom. But the tongues, the tongues of the saints in heaven, and they don't have their final bodies yet, I know, but the spirit that dies, go to be with the Lord. And, uh, when he says the tongues, does he mean also the tongues of angels? I think so. We know that angels speak. Big part of the Christmas story, right? Glory to God in the highest, right? There are fallen angels, demons. There is Satan. There are people who reject God. There are people who fight against God. There are people who worship false gods, other so-called gods. Every tongue that God has ever made, anything, anyone that God has ever made and put into them life and the capacity to speak will one day proclaim Jesus is Lord. So, let's talk about this mind that was in Christ Jesus. We know what the mind is in verse 5. It's the mind of humility. Now, 
let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Here's how it's described. There's five things here. Number one, simply, what was he? He was God. Of course he was God. That's what it means in the beginning of this, where it says, and this, this first one of the five is the one that you, you camp out on when you study and you think about the other four. It doesn't take anywhere near as long as to describe it. It's this first point that he was in the form of God and he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Or, or and, and you know, if you read a more modern translation of the Bible, it'll say something to the effect of uh, that Jesus didn't consider all of the rights that are associated with being God as anything to cling to or anything to hold on to. That's the idea of he didn't consider it robbery to be with God. The idea of robbery is to take something and to grab something and to hold on to it. And Jesus did not consider it as the, well, he's God. He's in the form of God. But when he was here, he was willing to lay aside a lot of the rights that go along with being God, that he just might be humble and a slave and a servant and everything else that he was here. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of humility. It's the ultimate. Listen, none of us in the humblest of our moments have descended in anything close to that. From divinity to a speck in his creation. To from the word which was there at creation. Let us make man in our image. That includes Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Christ. There. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. That's Christ. That's Christ. And the Word became flesh. Flesh. You know what flesh is, right? It's dirt. Doesn't the Bible say that? Of all the things that God made, the one thing that the Bible says that God made from the dust of the ground is us. God made everything else just by speaking it into existence, speaking it out of nothing. God didn't make man out of nothing. God made man out of dirt. And he says, that's what we're going to return to, dirt. And then God became that. That's the example of humility that we're given. That's the mind that Christ had, the mindset that Christ had, that God says, the Apostle Paul writes to these Christians and says, let this mind be in you also. Listen. God, who made dirt, became dirt for a little while. Who are we to, like, assert so many rights and and privileges and superiority and and self-righteousness over others who are also dirt? When Christ himself came all the way. Yeah, you think about that song we sing with the kids. You know, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. And, and it's a great song. But man, that, think about what you're saying when you say that. 
came from heaven to earth. This isn't just like he got on a plane and went on a trip. He didn't just leave one place and go to somewhere else. He was in the form of God. And did not count it robbery. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He laid aside, he did not hold on to, but laid aside all the rights of being God for the sake of what? But, verse 7 says, made himself of no reputation. Made himself of no reputation. He's God. Hey, what's your reputation like? I don't know, but like, that's a pretty good reputation to have. Oh yeah, I'm Hyatt, um, I'm Jesus, I'm God. Right? Pretty good reputation. Your, your reputation precedes you, sir. Right? He made himself of no reputation, but what? Taking the form of a man. Uh, notice the double use in that sentence of the word form. See it? Back in the beginning of verse 6, who being in the form of God, and then in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, right? So he was in the form of God, which means that he is God, and he took on the form of a bondservant and the likeness of a man. Bondservant, I know I've explained this before. Uh, the word gets translated that way. Uh, see, the word is slave. I'm not a scholar of language, but John MacArthur wrote an entire book about this single word a few years ago. And uh, the Greek word is doulos. And again, not asserting any language scholarship here. A couple of classes in a seminary doesn't make you a language expert. But, but, um, but the, the, the point is that uh, the word gets written bond servant for a couple of reasons. Um, among English-speaking Americans, maybe the word slave conjures up something that is not exactly supposed to be presented by the thought here. All right, so maybe that's why it's a different word. But that's what the, the but the, you can't escape that that's what the Greek word is. Jesus was in the form of God and took on the form of a slave, being found in the likeness of a man. What it speaks very powerfully of is the fact that Jesus had all of the glory and all of the rights and all of the honor and all of the authority that went along with being God. There is a passage of Scripture associated with Christ's passion that describes uh, his disciples as wanting to stop the fact that he's going to be arrested and crucified and having Jesus point out that if I wanted to, I could call upon legions of angels and stop this entire thing. You're familiar with that, right? It's because he took on the form, he humbled himself, and he took on the form of a slave and took on the likeness of a man for the purpose of dying for us. This is our example of humility, that Christ laid aside all of the rights and privileges that you might say that he had as God while he was here on earth. All the while, 
at times proclaiming to be God, you know, before Abraham was, I am, certainly performing miracles that could only identify the truly open-minded person, uh, could, could only respond by saying and seeing that he is God, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing people of various sicknesses and diseases and miraculously feeding people. And, and, and this could only show that he, is, that he is God in the flesh. And yet he took on the form of a slave. He took on the form of a bond servant. There are other examples in the Bible, and I want us to look up a few of them, that kind of show and elucidate for us this whole concept of, look, what are we talking about? We're talking about that we are commanded as Christians to be humble. And the great example of our humility is Jesus himself. And one of the things that Jesus did to exemplify humility for us is laid aside all of his rights of his position in the Godhead for the purpose of becoming a slave, becoming a man. There are other such examples and admonishments in Scripture of people like laying aside. Turn, turn to, for example, these are smaller examples than what Jesus did, but I just want you to see that it gets played out in the lives of men. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Go ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now listen to this. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Right? So there's an example in the life of the Apostle Paul of the fact that, listen, as a missionary and as an apostle who's uh entire sustenance depended upon the support of the churches that he labored in. In the case of this church, because they had a problem among them with uh, people who, young, able-bodied men who were not working and would not work, what he did was, uh, the Apostle Paul said, look, I don't even want to take anything from you. I'm going to labor among you because I want to set an example for you. Even though he says, I have every right, and certainly he has every right not only to ask, but demand and insist and order them. You need to like support me in this ministry, just like everybody else does in all these other churches that I go to. So again, the picture is of that of a Christian exercising humility by waiving a right to something, as Jesus did, but on a much grander scale when he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, right? Another example of this, turn, uh, maybe the better example, turn to Philemon chapter 8. Not chapter 8, there's only one chapter, but verse 8. Philemon 8. Right after Philippians comes Colossians First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, 
Right after Titus comes Philemon. If I were the guy, if I were the guy who put the New Testament together, first of all, it would not be as good as it was, as it is, but I would have put, I would have put Philemon right after Colossians. Because the, the church at Colossae met in the house of a guy named Philemon. And Colossians and Philemon are basically two letters that go together, were almost certainly written and transported to this church at the same time. The church of uh, the letter to the Colossians was also delivered then to the church of the Laodiceans, who would come up a little bit later in, in the book of Revelation as well one of the churches in Asia Minor. So Colossians is the red letter that's written to the church. Philemon is the letter that's written to the guy who was the house owner where the church met. And in this story, it's a tremendous, a tremendous account here that even going beyond just the details of the story, you can make a, a great analogy to, to Christ and how he forgives us and receives us and changes us and restores us. But... but uh, what you have is Paul writing a personal letter to Philemon, who was a friend of his, right? And, and he's writing because Philemon had a slave whose name was Onesimus. And uh, Onesimus ran away, stole himself away from his master, Philemon. Somehow found his way to the apostle Paul, probably when he was in prison in Rome. And you know what the Apostle Paul did? The Apostle Paul did what he did with almost everybody he met. He preached the gospel to them. Well, guess what? Onesimus believed and he got saved. And, and boy, you know, maybe it would have been excited for, exciting for Onesimus to learn. Ah, I've been set free now. Now I can see why God allowed me to escape from my master Philemon because now I've made it to Paul here and now I've, I've got my earthly freedom, I've got spiritual freedom, this is great, praise the Lord. And then the apostle Paul said, pack up, you're going back to Philemon's house. Right? Now this is another one of these examples of humility of a Christian. You can say something about Onesimus' humility, but you see the Apostle Paul's humility in this story. Look at verse 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Look at these words here. Being such a one as Paul the aged. In other words, he's saying there, I am appealing to you as an old man who's in prison. That's what he says, right? Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, I could tell you this guy Onesimus is of benefit to me. He's mine now. But I'm sending him back to you for the sake of love. And so I appeal to you as old man Paul who's in jail. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Right? Completely changed Onesimus. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without, look at this, without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, 
but as it were, voluntary. But, you know, it seems like so much to do to send this guy all the way from Rome to Colossae and then wonder if he's going to then make his way back or, or whatever. But, but again, the Apostle Paul, because he was an apostle, had a right to just, to just tell him, you know, he's mine now. But he humbled himself. He humbled himself and waived his right to the authority over this man and sent him back to Philemon and said, Philemon, I'm old man Paul, and this guy could be of very good use to me, but you know what? He's yours. Here he is. There's a great deal of humility that is required to waive one's rights. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where they, there were people in the congregation with, like suing each other, and, and, and the Apostle Paul says, this is a terrible, like, Example, you come to church and say, praise the Lord, and then you walk out and you take each other to court and sue each other. There are issues that arise that need like jurisprudence and judgment and everything else. But what the Apostle Paul says is, isn't there someone spiritual among you who can like, like do this? And then he says, why don't you rather accept wrong and just allow yourself to be cheated? Right? Why? Because your, your justice isn't of this world. What's more important is your testimony. And so again, he's calling for a certain degree of humility among Christians, even going so far as that. None of those things, examples I gave there, none of those measure up to what Jesus himself did, of course, which was left heaven above and all of the rights associated with being God. That was number one. Number two, he took on the form of a slave. Number three, he took on the form of a man Now go back to Philippians and let's see number four. And as I read it, I pointed it out. You you could stop what Paul was saying at any point. It would be enough, wouldn't it? Like if the apostle Paul just told them, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. That would be enough. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That would certainly be enough. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But look at this. Made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. So now you have Jesus. This would certainly be enough to make the point. Here's your example of humility. Jesus came to earth, became a man, became a slave, and set aside, laid aside all of the rights associated with being God. That's a pretty good example of humility. But it even goes beyond that. Being found in the appearance as a man, look at this. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Wow. Now there's humility. First of all, how about just the idea that he became obedient to anything? In my mind, Jesus is the obeyed, not the obedient. Not so. Jesus became obedient. His father had a will for him, a will for something that as a man seems virtually impossible to accomplish. But Jesus became obedient to everything that the father wanted him to do to to the point of his death. 
And even there, then, it doesn't stop. There's a fifth point that's made. Notice how Paul does this. He doesn't just say he was found obedient to death, to the point of death, but he adds even to the death of the cross. So now it's not just that he obeyed the Father's will all the way to his death, but look at the kind of death that he died. He died the kind of death that would fully display and properly satisfy the wrath of Almighty God against all of the sins of men. Crucifixion wasn't just an execution. It was a public example. Bodies were left on trees. Sometimes formal crosses were put together. Other times, literally, if you found a tree that had a couple branches sticking out, good enough. One thing I read estimates that the Romans in this period executed as many as, you ready for this, 30,000 people in Judea. Always rebellious Judea by crucifixion. The day Jesus was crucified, he wasn't the only one. There were two others. It was a shameful death because a body was stripped naked, hung on a cross or a tree, and left there for days. In Jesus' case, they had to take him down because it was holiday time and the Sabbath was coming, and that was all part of the prophecy that was, that was fulfilled, right? And his body, and that set the stage for what we call Easter in our, our, our modern language, right? They put his body in the grave, and then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And the tomb was empty. But, but crucifixion was a public, shameful death to make a point. All this stuff about Jesus being the Messiah was viewed by the Jews and the Romans alike as dangerous. Dangerous to the Romans because we could start a civil war over this. Dangerous to the Jews because the power and their position granted by the Romans and granted by their own religion was threatened. But all of that aside, what happened on Calvary was the satisfaction of Almighty God's holy and justifiable wrath against the sin, all of the sin of the world, even of sinners who hadn't even been born yet, even you and I. And so Jesus was obedient not just to the point of death, but to the point of that death. The death of the cross. The death that satisfied righteousness on the sake of God. He was obedient to the point of death where he could say, it is finished. He didn't just mean it is finished, I don't think, just because he died. He meant it is finished because God's wrath is satisfied. That is not just a theological description of the gospel. That is in Philippians because it is an example for our attitude and conduct. Let this mind be in you. Which was in Christ Jesus. 
the attitude, the frame of mind, the worldview, the humility of Jesus exemplified by the fact that even though he was God, he held on to none of the rights associated with that. He took on the form of a slave. He was found in the form of a man. He was obedient to death and obedient to the worst, most shameful kind of death. When he was God, our Creator. That is our example of how our mind and our deeds ought to be. Humble others ahead of ourselves. Sound lofty? It is. Now, the last couple minutes we have here. Look where it went. I mean, that would be enough if Paul just left that there. But look at verse 9, therefore. You got, I explained this a little bit already, but you got that therefore. You see it in verse 9, therefore? In other words, Christ's humility, Christ's humility had a future eternal purpose. God calls us to humility, but he doesn't call us to humility just because he's trying to teach us a lesson. I saved you from your sins, and so now you're going to be humble. No. There's a purpose in the will of God and in the plans of God. There's a purpose in the church of God and in the mission of the church of God for the humility of Christians. It is to show the world Christ and ultimately lead us into the eternal gift of his glory that he has for us. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. And the way you read this, inflection is an important verbal and intellectual tool in understanding like written language. You, you inflect, that is, put emphasis on words, when you, especially when you read and study, and this is why expository preaching is so important. When you see terms in adjacent phrases and sentences that are opposites, it's usually because those things are being compared. Do you see the word exalted? When you back up a little bit, what word do you see? You see humbled. So you read it like this. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. He humbled himself. God exalted him. That's the point. Christ humbled himself. Therefore, God highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. Every other name. Another, and listen, what does that mean? What that means is he is the greatest of all, period. No one is greater than Jesus. You know, Jesus once said of John the Baptist, there has never been a man born of women greater than John the Baptist, but even he, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, you know what Jesus is? Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. He is simply the greatest of all. He, but, but the path to go there was not the high and mighty and lofty path. It was the low and dirty, slug it out, make the sacrifice, humble yourself path. Not 
Jesus came and exalted himself, and therefore God exalted him too. Jesus came and humbled himself to the point of death, even to the point of the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other. Jesus is the greatest of all. It doesn't, listen, people can say whatever they want to say about him now, and he is patient, he is gracious, he's not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't think because people get away with saying the things that they say, accusing God of just being slack or not real because he hasn't returned yet to fulfill all of his promises, don't think that has anything to do with any weakness on God's part. He is holding back, holding off because he is still longing for people to repent and to be saved and every one of his elect certainly will. Praise the Lord. God has highly exalted him, given the name which is above every other name. He is the greatest of all, regardless of men they say now. Maybe men will not bow their knees to him now, but guess what? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven... Who's in heaven now? We talked about it before. Don't have to list it all, but every knee in heaven. Do angels have knees? Well, if they do, they're bending. That's it. You read about some of these creatures in Revelation surrounding the throne. Do they have knees? Maybe God made them with knees just so they can bend them before Jesus. Does that sound stupid? I don't care if it does. I really, I really don't. I think it sounds awesome. That's why I said it. So, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven are those on the earth and those under the earth. In other words, everyone, no matter what you think, no matter what you say, no matter what you've been taught, no matter where you are, if you're alive, if you're dead, if you're going to heaven, if you're going to hell forever, there will be no non-believers in hell. They're non-believers now, but they're not going to be then. And I say that with no haughtiness at all. It's reality. I don't know what people know in hell. I don't know what they experience in hell. I don't know what they can see in hell, but they know Jesus is Lord. And let me be very careful with that, because I say that with no haughtiness, because but for God's grace towards me, that would be me. I know that. Believe me, I know that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It started with the humility and went to the exaltation and glory. Your example, your example, the example for us is in this life now, Humble yourself as Jesus did because the glory that awaits is going to make us forget all of this anyway. The stuff that we, even the very earth itself, the Bible says the elements will be melted with fervent heat and with a loud noise, Peter said. Even the earth itself is not going to last. So while you're here, humble yourself in it. Look at the example of Christ and humble yourself as we look ahead to the future glory. We are future-looking people. Later on in this very book, in Philippians, Paul says, I, I press forward 
for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To the Colossians, which I mentioned before, he said, set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. Humble yourself towards God. Humble yourself towards your brethren. Humble yourself towards your enemies. There's more to say, but the Bible says that God resists the proud and gives His grace to the humble. In one of the New Testament quotations of that, the application is made, therefore, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He what? Will lift you up. Isn't that what's being described here? Jesus, our great example, humbled Himself and God exalted Him. The path, listen, the path to being right with God starts at humility. Fanny and Ken, come on up here and let's sing our last song of the day and then we'll close in prayer.